Section 26 of The History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 1. Chapter 8. Of the Attempts to Establish a Theory in Chemistry. Part 1. Bacon, Lord Verulam, as early as the commencement of the 17th century, had pointed out the importance of chemical investigations and had predicted the immense advantages which would result from the science when it came to be properly cultivated and extended. But he did not himself attempt either to construct a theory of chemistry or even to extend it beyond the bounds which it had reached before he began to write. Neither did Boyle, notwithstanding the importance of investigations, and his comparative freedom from the prejudices of the alchemists, attempt anything like a theory of chemistry, though the observations which he made in his skeptical chemist had considerable effect in overturning, or at least in hastening, the downfall of the absurd chemical opinions which at the time prevailed, and the puerile hypotheses respecting the animal functions, and the pathology and treatment of diseases founded on these opinions. The first person who can with propriety be said to have attempted to construct a theory of chemistry was Becker. John Joachim Becker, one of the most extraordinary men of the age in which he lived, was born at Spires in Germany in the year 1635. His father, as Becker himself informs us, was a very learned Lutheran preacher. As he lost his father when he was very young, and as that part of Germany where he lived had been ruined by the Thirty Years' War, his family was reduced to great poverty. However, his passion for information was so great that he contrived to educate himself by studying what books he could procure, and in this way acquired a great deal of knowledge. Afterwards he travelled through the greatest part of Germany, Italy, Sweden, and Holland. In the year 1666 he was appointed public professor of medicine in the University of Mentz, and soon after chief physician to the elector. In that capacity he took up his residence in Munich, where he was furnished by the elector with an excellent laboratory, but he soon fell into difficulties, the nature of which does not appear, and was obliged to leave the place. He took refuge in Vienna, where, from his knowledge of finance, he was appointed Chamberlain to Count Zinzendorf, and through him acquired so much importance in the eyes of the court that he was named a member of the newly erected College of Commerce, and obtained the title of Imperial Commercial Counselor and Chamberlain. But here also he speedily raised up so many enemies against himself that he found it necessary to leave Vienna and to carry with him his wife and children. He repaired to Holland and settled at Harlem in 1678. Here he was likely to have been successful, but his enemies from Vienna followed him and obliged him to leave Holland. In 1680 we find him in Great Britain, where he examined the Scottish lead mines and smelting works, and in 1681 and 1682 he traversed Cornwall and studied the mines and smelting works of that great mining county. Here he suggested several improvements and ameliorations. Soon after this an advantageous proposal was made to him by the Duke of Mecklenburg-Gustrow by means of Count Zinzendorf, but all his projects were arrested by his death, which took place in the year 1682. It is said that he died in London, but I have not been able to find any evidence of this. It would be a difficult task to particularize his various discoveries, which are scattered through a multiplicity of writings. He was undoubtedly the first discoverer of boracic acid, 
though the credit of the discovery has usually been given to Hamburg. But then he gives no account of boracic acid, nor does he seem to have attended to its qualities. The following is a list of Becker's writings. 1. Metallurgia, or the natural science of metals. 2. Institutiones chimica. 3. Parnassus medicinalis illustrata. 4. Oedipus chimicus seu institutiones chimica. 5. Acta laborati chimici monascensis su physica subterranea. This, which is the most important of all his works, is usually known by the name of Physica Subterranea. This is the sole title affixed to it in the edition published at Leipzig in 1703, to which Stahl has prefixed a long introduction. It is divided into seven sections. In the first he treats of the creation of the world. In the second he gives a chemical account of the motions and changes which are constantly going on in the earth. In the third he treats of the three principles of all bodies, which he calls earths. The first of these principles of metals and stones is the fusible or stony earth. The second principle of minerals is the fat earth, improperly called sulfur. The third principle is the fluid earth, improperly called mercury. In the fourth section he treats of the action of subterraneous principles, or the formulation of mixts. In the fifth he treats of the solution of the three classes of mixts, animals, vegetables, and metals. In the sixth he treats of mixts, in which he gives their chemical constituents. This section is very curious, because it gives Becker's views of the constitution of compound bodies. It will be seen from it that he had much more correct notions of the real objects of chemistry than any of his contemporaries. In the seventh and last section he treats of the accidents and physical affectations of subterraneous bodies. 6. Experimentum chemicum novum quo artificialis et instantanea metallorum generatio et transmutatio ad oculum demonstrator. This constitutes the first supplement to the physica subterranea. 7. Supplementum secundum in physicum subterranea demonstratio philosophica su thesis chimica veritatum et possibilitatum transmutationis metallorum in aurum evincentis. 8. Trifolium Beccarianum Hollandicum. 9. Experimentum Novum et Curiosum de Minera Arenaria Perpetua, Sive Podromus Historiae, Su Propositionis Priep, D.D. Hollandiae, Ordinibus ab Authore Facte, Circa Ari Extractionem, Mediante Arena Littorali, Per Modum Minere, Perpetua su Operationis Magna, Fusoria cum emolumentu, loco supplementi tertii, in physicum suum subterraneum. 10. Chemical Luckpot, or Great Chemical Agreement, in a collection of 1,500 chemical processes. 11. Foolish Wisdom and Wise Folly. 12. Magnalia Natura. 13. Trippus Hermeticus Fatidicus, Pendens Oracula Chemica, Su I laboratorium portatile, cum methodo veres bagiricae, su juxta exigentium natura laborandi, accessit pro praxi et exemplo. 2. Centrum mundi, concatenatum su duum veratus hermeticus s magnorum duorum productorum nitri et salis textura et anatomia atque in omnium precedentium confirmationem 
adjunctum est, three, alphabetum minerale su viginti quator, theses de subterraneorum, mineralium genesi, textura et analysi, his accessit concordantia mercury lunae et menstruorum. 14. Chemical Rose Garden. 15. Pantaleon de Lavartus. 16. Beccari, Lancelotti, etc. Epistole Quatuor Chimica. Becker's great merit was the contravance of a chemical theory by which all the known facts were connected together and deduced from one general principle. But as this theory was adopted and considerably modified by Stahl, it will be better to lay a sketch of it before the reader. After mentioning a few particulars of the life and labors of one of the most extraordinary men whom Germany has produced, a man who, in spite of the moroseness and haughtiness of his character, and in spite of the barbarity of his style, raised himself to the very first rank as a man of science, and had the rare or almost unique fortune of giving laws at the same time to two different and important sciences, which he cultivated together, without letting his opinions respecting the one influence him with regard to the other. These sciences were chemistry and medicine. George Ernest Stahl was born at Ansbach in the year 1660. He studied medicine at Jena under George Wolfgang Weddell and got his doctor's degree at the age of 23. Immediately after this, he began his career as a public lecturer. In 1687, the Duke of Weimar gave him the title of physician to the court. In 1694, he was named, at the solicitation of Frederick Hoffmann, second professor of medicine in the University of Halle, which had just been established. Hoffmann and he were at that time great friends, though they afterwards quarreled. Both of them were men of the very highest talents, and both were the founders of medical systems, which, of course, each was anxious to support. Hoffman had greatly the superiority in elegance and clearness of style, and in all the amenities of polite manners, but perhaps the moroseness of style, and the obscurity, or rather mysticism of his style, contributed equally with the more amicable qualities of Hoffman to excite the attention and produce the veneration with which he was viewed by his pupils, and, indeed, by the world at large. At Hall he continued as a teacher of medicine for twenty-two years, in 1716, he was appointed physician to the King of Prussia. In consequence of this appointment, he left Hall and resided in Berlin, where he died in the year 1734, in the 75th year of his age. Notwithstanding the great figure that Stahl made as a chemist, there is no evidence that he ever taught that science in any public school. The Berlin Academy had been founded under the superintendence of Leibniz, who was its first president and therefore existed when Stahl was in Berlin, but till it was renovated in 1745 by Frederick the Great, this academy possessed but little activity, and could scarcely, therefore, have stimulated Stahl to attend to chemical science. However, his Chimia Rationalist et Experimentalis was published in 1720, while he resided in Berlin. The same date is appended to the preface of his Fundamenta Chimica, but... From some expressions in that preface, it must, I should think, have been written not by Stahl, but by some other person. I suspect that the book had been written by some of his pupils, from the lectures of the author while at Hall. If this was really the case, 
it was obvious that Stahl must have taught chemistry as well as medicine in the University of Halle. Stahl's medical theory is not less deserving of notice than his chemical, but it is not the object of this work to enter into medical speculations. Like van Helmont, he resolved all diseases into the actions of the soul, which was not merely the former of the body, but its ruler and regulator. When any of the functions are deranged, the soul exerts itself to restore them again to their healthy state, and she accomplishes this by what in common language is called disease. The business of a medical man, then, is not to prevent diseases or to stop them short when they appear, because they are the efforts of the soul, the vis medicatrix natura, to restore the deranged state of the functions, but he must watch these diseases and prevent the symptoms from becoming too violent. He must assist nature to produce the intended effect and check her exertions when they become abnormal. It was a kind of modification of this theory, or rather a mixture of the Stalian and Hoffmannian theories, that Dr. Cullen afterwards taught in Edinburgh with so much eclat. And these opinions, so far as medical theories have any influence on practice, still continue in some measure prevalent. Indeed, much of the vulgar practice followed by medical men, chiefly in consequence of the education which they have received, is deduced from these two theories. But it would be too great a digression from the object of this work to enter into any details. Suffice it to say that the rival theories of Hoffmann and Stahl for many years divided the medical world in Germany, if not in the greater part of Europe. It was no small matter of exultation to so young a medical school as Hall to have at once within its walls two such eminent teachers as Hoffmann and Stahl. Let us turn our attention to the chemical writings of Stahl. Of these the most important is his Fundamenta Chimica Dogmatica et Experimentalis. It is divided, like the chemistry of Boerhaave, into a theoretical and practical part. The perusal of it is very disagreeable, as it is full of German words and phrases, and symbols are almost constantly substituted for words, as was at the time the custom. His definition of chemistry is much more exact than Boerhaave's. It is, according to him, the art resolving compound bodies into their constituents, and of again forming them by uniting these constituents together. He is inclined to believe with Becker that the simple principles are four in number. The mixts are compounds of these principles, and he shows by the doctrine of permutations that if we suppose the simple principles four, then the number of mixts will be 40,340. He treats in the first place of mixts, compounds, and aggregates. The first object of chemistry is corruption, the second generation. Of these he treats at considerable length, giving an account of the different chemical processes and of the apparatus employed. He next treats of salts, which he defines mixts composed of water and earth, both simple and pure, and intimately united. The salts are vitriol, alum, nitre, common salt, and sal ammoniac. He next treats of more compound salts. These are sugar, tartar, salts from the animal and salts from the mineral kingdom, and quicklime. After this comes sulfur, cinnabar, antimony, the sulfur of vitriol, the sulfur of nitre, resins, and distilled oils. Then he treats of water, which he divides into aqua humide or common water, and aqua sicca or mercury. Next he treats of earths, which are of two kinds, viz. friable earths, such as clay, loam, sand, etc., and metallic earths, constituting the bases of the metals. 
He next treats of the metals, and, as a preliminary, we have a description of the method of smelting and operating upon the different metals. The metals are then described successively in the following order. Gold, silver, copper, iron, tin, lead, bismuth, zinc, antimony. To this part of the system are added three sections. The first treats of mercuries, the second of the philosopher's stone, and the third of the universal medicine. We must not suppose that Stahl was a believer in these ideal compositions. His object was merely to give a history of the different processes which had been recommended by the alchemists. The second part of his work is divided into two tracts. The first tract contains three sections. The first of these treats the nature of solids and fluids, or solutions and menstrua, of the effects of heat and fire, of effervescence and boiling, of volatilization, of fusion and liquefaction, of distillation, of precipitation, of calcination and incineration, of detonation, of amalgamation, of crystallization and insipation, and of the fixity and firmness of bodies. In the second section we have an account of salts, and of their generation and transmutation, of sulfur and inflammability, of phosphorus, of colors, and of the nature of metals and minerals. In this article he gives short definitions of these bodies and shows how they may be known. The bodies thus defined are gold, silver, iron, copper, lead, tin, mercury, antimony, sulfur, arsenic, vitriol, common salt, nitre, alum, sal ammoniac, alkalis, and salts, viz. muriatic acid, sulfuric, nitric, and sulfurous. In the third section he treats of the method of reducing metallic calces, of the mode of separating metals from their scoria, of the mode of making artificial gems, and finally of the mode of giving copper a golden color. The second tract is divided into two parts. The first part is divided into four sections. In the first section he treats of the instruments of chemical motion, of fire, of air, of water, of the most subtile earth or salt. In the second section he treats de subjectis, under the several heads of dissolving aggregates, of triturations and solutions, and of calcinations and combustions. In the third section he treats of the object of chemistry under the following heads, of chemical corruption, consisting of compounds from liquids, of the separation of solids and fluids, of mixts, of the solution of compounds from solids, in the fourth section he treats of fermentation. The second part of this second tract treats of chemical generation and is divided into two sections. In the first section he treats of the aggregate collection of bodies into fluids and solids. The section treats of compositions under the heads of volatile and solid bodies. He gives in the last article an account of the combination of mixts. The third and last part of this elaborate work discusses three subjects, viz. Zymotechnia or fermentation, halotechnia or the production and properties of salts, and pyrotechnia in which the whole of the Stalian doctrine of phlogiston is developed. This third part has all the appearance of having been notes written down by some person during the lectures of Stahl, for it consists of alternate sentences of Latin and German. It is not at all likely that Stahl himself would have produced such a piebald work, 
but if he lectured in Latin, as was at that time the universal custom, it was natural for a person occupied in taking down the lectures to write as far as possible in Latin, but when any of the Latin phrases were lost, or did not immediately occur to memory, it were equally natural to write down the meaning of what the professor stated in the language most familiar to the writer, which was undoubtedly the German. End of section 26. Recording by Grognor.